I'm going to ask you, if you will, this morning to turn back with me to uh, the book of Matthew. I'm going to briefly touch on the 19th chapter of the book of Luke. And then I'm going to conclude in Acts 12. But Matthew 22, I'm actually in the third part of a a sermon series concluding that today. Um, And I want you to join me, if you will, uh, in in, in that journey. I... um, it's the revolution of simplicity, and we've been talking about simple, um, simple church and, and how to simplify our lives, how to simplify our uh, walk with God, and uh, I, I just want you to join me there. I'm having some technical trouble here. You know, I'm saving a bunch of paper preaching from this iPad, but they don't always want to work like you want them to. There you go. If you follow me through the nuts and bolts of this message uh, I've got a word from God for us at the end. And I, I really do believe some weeks ago that God spoke powerfully and prophetically to me. I've shared a little bit of it with the staff. I shared a little bit of it with our small group leaders and our small group retreat. Um, and I, I didn't know if I would and when I would share it with the congregation. But today is that day. And, and I'm, I'm holding that for the end because it connects. And if all you're wor- worried about is the revelation, it'll be worth the wait. I'm going to weed through some very practical conversations, some of the nuts and bolts conversations about what we've been talking about. And you might be tempted if you're kind of disengaged uh, and you don't really have kids involved or you don't really care about why we do the things that we do. Uh, you, you might be disengaged, but I challenge you to hold on, stay with me because there's big value in what I'm saying. And then it all culminates at the end. I believe I have a strong word for us before we walk out of here from the book of Acts chapter number 12. In the last couple weeks, we started two weeks ago looking at a 30,000 foot view, talking about a simple revolution, how our lives are so complex, so busy, that we have become uh, cluttered in all that we do. In our personal relationship with God, we've become cluttered as a church as to how we do church. We've spent so much time trying to keep uh, uh, sacred cow traditions alive and programs that people love alive. And many times those programs are not effective. We just do them because we've always done them and people love them, uh, but they're not really producing lasting life change in people's lives. They're not producing long-term spiritual growth. And so we had to stop and ask the question, what are we doing that's really making a difference in people's lives? And what can we get rid of that's not making a significant impact? Or how can we do things differently? So we've been challenging our, our own personal lives. How do we declutter our lives to focus on the main thing, Jesus, and our walk with Him? How do we declutter the way we do church so that the church is investing its resources, its time, its talent, its treasure in a way that makes the most significant impact in the lives of people long term. Um, last week we talked about it from a, or two weeks ago from a 30,000 foot view. We talked about the, the theology of simple, how Jesus stepped into a very complex religious day where the rabbis of his day had looked at the law, the first five books of the Bible, and they had come up with 613 commands the people were supposed to live by, and the rabbis had put the burdensome yoke of those 613 commands upon the necks of their followers, and Jesus stepped into this complex religious system, and he said in Matthew chapter 22, I want you to look with me there, verse 37, it'll be on your screens, Jesus replied as they tried to trip him up, one of the lawyers... 
uh, sent by the Pharisees tried to trip Jesus up asking which of those 613 commands was the most important to God. And this was his reply. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus, a revolutionary of the simple, took 613 commandments, boiled them down into two, love God and love people, and he said all the law and the prophets hinge on these two commands, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with everything in you and love people, uh, just like you love yourself. He boiled 613 down into two. So we, we, in our world today, have done just what the religious rulers of that world have done. We've taken the message of the gospel and complicated it. But Jesus took the complicated message of the religious leaders and made them simple. They provided 613 rules of a performance-based religion. Jesus comes along with a message of grace and life transformation through the cross. And he talks about how to love God, how to love people. That's why he was able to say in Mark, my yoke is easy compared to the burdensome yoke of these these other rabbis teaching a rules-based, works-based religion. He said, I'm teaching you a religion where you love God, you love people. It's simple. It's not as complicated as they've made it. You come through the cross, you come through grace, and you spend the rest of your life loving God and loving people. And he said, come to me, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So we moved closer last week from the 30,000-foot theological view to a 20,000-foot view, and we started talking about practicalities. Based on the simplification of the complex, we looked at why Jesus came to the earth. What was His purpose? And as the founder of the church, the purpose of the founder says a lot about what the purpose of His church ought to be. Why do we exist? Why are we here as a congregation? Why should we be meeting every Sunday calling ourselves the church? Jesus said in Luke 19.10, the reason he came was to seek and save that which was lost. He even said in that passage, I didn't come to coddle insiders. I came to reach outsiders. I came to seek and save that which was lost. The religious community of that day was inward focused. They existed for themselves. And we shared with you a statistic that 8 out of 10 churchgoers in America said they believe the reason the church exists was to provide a place of fellowship for Christians. 80% of people who go to church in America believe the reason the church exists is to provide a place of fellowship for believers. That means that, that they believe that the church exists, number one, for them. It's an internal focus, the same thing as it was in Jesus' day. And Jesus was a revolutionary, and he said, no, I came to seek and save that which was lost. So he boiled all the commands down to two, love God, love people. All of the prophets in the law hinge on those two. And then when he said why he came, he said, I came to seek and save the lost people. And at the end of that, uh, end of his life, he gives this what we call the Great Commission. He reiterates what he said in Luke 19, I came to seek and save lost people. When he tells his disciples in Matthew 28, he said, I want you to go in all the world and preach the gospel. Because he came to seek and save the lost, and that's what the church ought to be doing. I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But then he says, and then I want you to make disciples of them. Preach the gospel and make disciples. So when you look at all of the things Jesus said while he was on the earth, what does North Place Church need to be doing to make an emphasis? If we're trying to to look at everything we're doing and make the greatest impact, it means we can't do everything because activity, just because the building is busy every day and there are cars in the parking lot and there's something going on up here every night of the week, does not necessarily mean people are growing spiritually. 
activity does not necessarily mean people's lives are being transformed. So we have to look at what we're doing, why we're doing it, and ask the question, is it really changing people's lives? And if it's not, let's do something else. Focus our time and energy in what is creating the greatest long-term spiritual growth. And so we boiled it down to an easy remember, very a memorable and biblical process of why we exist and this is how we're going to create disciples. We spent a great deal of time talking about it last week. And some of you will remember that. I hope that you still remember if somebody comes up to you in the next few months and asks you, hey, what, what, is, what, do you, what is it about your church? Why does your church exist? What is the purpose of North Place Church? What is North Place Church about? You can say, we exist to experience Christ. We exist to experience community. And we exist to experience compassion. That is also our discipleship process. People can come into this building, have an encounter with Christ, experience Christ in a larger context, and then we encourage them to move into relationship, just like we used to encourage them to move into Sunday school. We don't have room to do Sunday school here, so we move them into small groups. Some of them happen on the campus. Some of them happen in people's homes. But it's in relationships that people begin to grow. I was discipled in a small group environment outside of church on a Friday night Bible study. That's where people... People invested in my life. So I experienced Christ at an altar call in church. Then I experienced community. I learned to love people and love God deeper in community. And it was in that community that my gifts were established. And I learned what God was calling me to do with my rest of my life. Experiencing compassion for the lost. I went through that process. Experienced Christ. Experienced community. Experienced compassion. You're loving God. Loving people. Serving the world. That's it. You're learning how to follow Christ. And you'll go through that cycle the rest of your life. That's how we moved it to the 20,000 foot view. Today I want to spend a little bit of time talking with you in even more detailed fashion in a 10,000 foot view. And some of you think, well, pastor's talking about simple church and, and that means we're going we're gonna to be going that direction. No, I'm not talking to you about something we're going to do. The reason we're having this conversation is it's explaining some things we've been doing for nearly three years. We've been working on trying to simplify the processes of our church to do what matters most over the last three years. God began to deal with me about this back in 2009, late 2008. And I went to our staff with a challenge. I said, guys, we're going to have to figure out how to do less better. We got to do less better because activity does not, necessi- does not necessarily mean people's lives are being changed. We need to evaluate what we're doing, determine what's producing the greatest long-term spiritual growth in people's lives, focus our time and energy on those things. Some of you will remember that have teenagers. We started with our youth ministry. We had a great youth ministry that was attracting hundreds of students. But when we examined the youth ministry, kids were coming, they were hanging out, they were having activities, but we were not producing spiritual warriors. Those kids were not growing up in Christ. Some of them were, and the only ones that were were the ones that had relationship. But the greatest majority of those kids weren't. So we shifted from divining success as having hundreds of kids in the building to seeing how many were producing life fruit for God and we were frustrated because that wasn't happening the way it should have been. So we went from doing programs and events to creating a youth ministry that was driven by discipleship in small groups. And obviously we lost some of the hundreds of students but we knew that if we could start working on the quality of students, producing students that knew the word, that walked in Christ, that lived with holiness, that walked in integrity, there would be a legitimate revival fire that would burn in them and it would attract other students and and we're in that process. Now a lot of things have gone on there. It's not perfect. It's still a work in progress but the issue is we are making progress. 
And then we have moved from the youth ministry to adult ministry at the end of 2009. And that's when we launched small groups for the very first time. We really had nothing at North Place Church to connect people to life outside of Sunday mornings. And we launched small groups. But we made this commitment. We don't want to be a church with small groups. We want to be a church of small groups. And you say, well, Pastor, that's not that big a difference. Yeah, that one little word, with or of, makes a tremendous difference. Because a church with small groups adds small groups to all of their existing programs. they got all these programs and they just start a new one. And there's one more program to compete for everybody's time. So a church with small groups just adds small groups to everything else going on. And that was not what we were trying to do. We're trying to do less, better, and do what makes the greatest difference. So we tried to be, we're attempting to move towards becoming a church of small groups so that every other program that ever happened in this church begins to be facilitated through a small group ministry model so that we do weekends well where people experience Christ. We do small groups well where people experience community and people are mobilized into compassion and ministry and things of that nature. And they go through that process. So instead of doing traditional ministry to men and women the way they've always been done, we've taken men and encourage them that have a passion for men's ministry or women that have a passion for women's ministry to facilitate that ministry under the umbrella of small groups. We're still doing men's ministry, still doing women's ministry, but doing them in a small group format. Doesn't mean we won't have events. We had a great men's retreat this year, uh, but that men's retreat was what we used. We funneled that men's retreat from small groups. We tried to recruit men's leaders for small groups so it all was connected to a cohesive process so that people could experience Christ, experience community, and experience compassion. Now, I want us to uh, talk about children's ministry because that's the last area of ministry that we have focused our energy and efforts on. Last year, uh, we, we looked at our children's programs, those that were going on on Sunday, like right now, those that were going on, on in midweek, and, and we, we delayed some of those midweek programs so we could study what is going on around the world today in children's ministry that is making an impact in children's lives. We got a group of people together that traveled from churches all over America to study what was being effective in changing children's lives, and they were collecting data. At the same time, I gave the staff a challenge. And I want you to think about this with me. Engage your hearts and think about this is a this is one of those I had one of those what if moments somewhere on a plane or traveling in a car, and I just got convicted about it. Uh, and I, I really this is what I challenged the staff. I said, What if we could have a children's ministry where everybody was working together on the same page and building off of each other instead of competing for volunteers and family time and calendar space. What if they went to church on Sunday morning and they studied one thing and then if they went to a midweek service they didn't study and learn something different. It was building on what they learned on Sunday and what if those instead of competing against each other this kid's ministry wasn't trying to get to the calendar before that kid's ministry they were all working together to produce a child who was spiritually mature growing in Christ. And what if the children's ministry actually connected with the youth ministry? And what if the youth ministry actually connected with the young adult ministry so that we had a structured, strategic system of developing disciples from the cradle all the way to college? I thought about it like this. Haley and I were a part of establishing a private Christian school 
in our last congregation. And there were many times parents would come to me as the pastor of the church trying to make a decision about where their kids wanted to go to school. And because I knew the curriculum of the school and I knew the strategy and philosophy of the school, I could say to those parents, if you bring your child in here as a uh, four-year-old in our kindergarten for four-year-olds and they stay all the way through high school, this is what they're going to learn. These are the biblical principles, the educational principles. This is what they're going to learn. If they came in as a third grader and they stayed through the sixth grade, we had a comprehensive strategy that said during those three grades, this is what they're going to be taught, this is what they're going to learn, and we're going to evaluate it. The school does that. Why can't the church have a thought-out, prayed-through, systematic approach to studying the Bible so that if a parent has a baby born in this church and places them in the nursery and they stay at North Place Church or that child graduates high school, we can tell that parent, in the next 18 years, this is exactly what your child is going to learn. There's a systematic, thought-through process of biblical theology that we're going to invest into the lives of your children. And here's another problem. Because we don't have that in churches across America, 80 percent of children who graduate high school that are grown up in church are not in church one year after attending college. Do you hear that? Eight out of ten students that grow up in church are walking away from God when they leave their parents home and they go to college. Somehow we have to close the black hole. We have to engage students in a way that they're going to stay connected to Jesus when they leave their parents home. If that trend continues, friend, there will not be a church in America in the next 25 years. So you listen to me and say, Pastor, I, this, doesn't, this stuff doesn't matter to me. I don't have kids. I'm a grandchild. I'm a grandparent. Or my kids live in Michigan or, or, or somewhere in California. I don't, I don't have kids here. It better matter to you. And it better matter to you as a believer in Christ. Because if we don't answer the dilemma of 8 out of 10 students walking away from God when they leave the local church, uh, then, then we're not going to have a church. If you care about Christ and you care about evangelism and you care about America, all of of this stuff matters and it starts with children that's why it matters even if you don't have kids so we we my heart was that we would have all of our stuff in line and that we would come back this september we were designing the back and having worlds a while doing what i said you know they're going to have all the cool looking stuff up there next in this next month and i wanted to launch this new strategy of children's ministry this this fall but as we studied we, were really, we really had our focus in the wrong place because we were thinking that the church was the greatest impact on a child's life, and we were wrong. When you look at the numbers and the data, um, the church only has a few hours in a child's life because they're only here an hour, hour and 15 minutes a week. If they come to other things, maybe add another hour in that, and they're at home the rest of the time. The greatest force of change in a child's life is not the church. The greatest force of change in a child's life is their home. And if there was a way that we as a church could come alongside the home instead of trying to figure out how do we disciple children when we're only going to get them a maximum of two hours a week, how do we leverage that two hours a week to make a difference but at the same time resource parents so that what we're doing on Sunday or some other time in the week is connecting to what they're doing at home. Let me, let, me, let me give you an example of what that might look like. What if caregivers, parents, were given a curriculum that combined with the teachers of what their kids were getting at church and it was a supportive curriculum in their homes? This, you, know, you know what you get if you combine yellow and red? You get orange. 
And you're going to hear that. If you're a parent, you probably already heard that. You've seen that. That's what we've been talking about behind the scenes because yellow would be like for the church, the light of the world. Red is like for blood, the connection in the family. And you get yellow, the church, and the blood of the family, and you connect them together. You get orange, and orange is the representation of the partnership between the home and the family. And we started thinking about things differently. We were ready to launch a program in September, but that program did not take into consideration the value that parents and the home have. And we're trying to create this cohesive strategy so that everything is working together. But we didn't think through about how to bring parents and the home into that strategy. So we put the brakes on it and we said we've got to add the value of the home into this and figure out how we're going to resource something. So we didn't launch this fall because we want to get it right when we launch it. And we're trying to figure out how to resource the family and get it right the first time. So think about it like this. What if every few weeks, now think about this if you're a parent, and we don't have all the details worked out, and that's what we're doing right now, but what if every few weeks we had a high-energy family service that obviously wasn't on Sunday morning uh, so that parents and children could go to church together in a service geared towards the family. It was a fun, high-energy environment where parents came with their kids and they did church together. And during that service, there was a biblical theme that would be introduced that would stand for the next several weeks And in church on Sunday morning and in the other kids' environments, the other ministries of the children, that theme was the one that was carried out. But also in that service, parents were resourced so that they could walk through at home with the same things and same stories in Scripture that connected with what the kids are learning. So there's reinforcement and information being handed and passed down all the way throughout. And the children are learning repetitively in various places in Scripture the same thing and the same concept. So what would it look like? How would it be? Think of it like this. One of the options we have is to give you, uh, to recommend a movie for your family to watch. A family movie for you to sit down and watch together as a family. But we give you the material so that while you're watching the movie, you know exactly where to stop the movie and ask your child, we've been learning this in church, we've been learning this at home in our family devotions, what is that movie saying that backs up what we've been talking about? Or what is that movie saying that is against the Christian worldview or the biblical concepts so that it resources parents to bring these things into their home? And then on top of that, there would be small groups for kids or small group options for families to go together and do together. So there'd be so some morning emphasis, kids small groups, family services, parents connecting with kids in the home would all be working together, red and yellow make orange. The only reason this matters is because we're trying to do our best as a church to improve our ministries so that our heart is in the right place, that we, we have created a place for broken people to find Christ and see them spiritually mature into devoted followers of Christ. But as we said for the last few weeks, Simple does not equal easy. It's not easy to simplify your personal life in a complex world. And it's not easy for a church leader to simplify the way we're doing church to make a greater impact. Most people agree with the the theology of the 30,000 foot view. Yep, Jesus simplified the complex religious ways. Amen. Love God, love people. Most people are fine there. Even when you get down to the 20,000 foot level, you see that the the logic, the biblical relevance of of the process. Experience Christ, experience community, experience compassion. People need to love God. They need to love people. They need to serve in ministry. That's what believers do. It's logical. It's biblical. They get it. But it's when you get down to the nitty gritty and trying to align what you're saying in philosophy with what you're doing at the local church level, 
that people get bothered when simplifying means a long-loved established program goes by the wayside in order to be more effective. That's when people seem to push back. Simple isn't easy. Some weeks ago, uh, as I was leaving for Sri Lanka, I had a lot of things in my heart. And this is where the word from the Lord comes in. I had, I had, a, I had a lot of things in my heart. I'm like, God, you know what? We just want to make an impact. We just, we as pastors, as a church, we just want to make an impact. We want to make an impact in our city. We want to Im- impact in our, in, in our region. We want, to, we want to see people come to Christ. We, we, we want to see lives changed. We want to see broken families restored. We want to see addicts delivered. Help us. I was struggling with this, making this reality and trying to, as a pastor, position us as a church and, and trying to help people understand why we do what we do, even if it means one of their beloved programs are no more. And our heart is simply to try to reach people. I was on the plane to Sri Lanka. I was having some time of prayer, obviously. I spent 20 some odd hours on flights getting from here to there. And so I determined that I would read the book of Acts on this one leg of the flight. I got down to Acts chapter 12. And as I was reading Acts chapter 12, I I can only say I was arrested by the Holy Spirit. I mean literally arrested by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as I knew, as I read this, you know, there, there are times when you read the Bible and you know you're reading the Bible. But then there are times when you're reading the Bible and it's like the words jump off of the page. And, the, and it, it, it starts becoming more than just words on a page. It starts becoming revelation to your soul. That's what happened. And it was like the Holy Spirit came down. In the, it was in the middle of the night. Everybody was asleep but me. And I, I started weeping. I, I, I could sense the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I lifted my hands. I started praising God. I knew God was speaking to me. I want you to look with me in Acts chapter 12. I want us to follow through the 12th chapter of the book of Acts as we conclude this sermon. Trying to be simple isn't easy. Trying to, and, and I really believe this word was a word for our church. But I believe it's a special word for somebody in this room today who's facing some significant bondage. You're facing some significant obstacles in your life. And I want you to receive this word today. In Acts 12, verse number 1, it says... It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison. Now I want you to notice this. This is something that the Holy Spirit, as I read through this, I want you to notice just how secure Peter was. I want you to notice just how many obstacles were in Peter. How many chains, how many guards were guarding him. I want you to know how bound Peter was. Okay, The Bible goes to great detail in these verses to show us just how... I mean, you can be in prison... But you can be in prison in maximum security prison. You can be guarded, but you can be really, really guarded. And I really believe the scripture goes into deep detail to show us just how much of a miracle of deliverance this is because Luke spends a great degree of time spelling out the details of how many soldiers were guarding him, uh, how many, I mean, how much bondage he actually was in. Listen to this, verse 4, after arresting him, he put him in prison handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. That's 16 soldiers. 
Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison. But notice this. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. So Peter is in bondage. There are 16 soldiers that have been assigned to guard Peter. And while he is in prison, guarded by 16 of the king's best soldiers, verse 5, the church is going to prayer for Peter's deliverance. Now verse 6, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. You get this? He's sleeping between two soldiers and he's bound by two chains. I don't know if that means there were chains around his feet and his hands and they were bound together or both. He may have been bound that way or bound to each soldier that he was sleeping in between. But the reality is four squadrons of four soldiers have been sent to guard him. He is chained and sleeping between two soldiers and there are sentries at the door guarding his cell. I have a feeling that Agrippa did not want him loose. He was bound, okay, as bound as you can be. Suddenly, verse 7 says, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up and he said, quick, get up. And the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Deliverance number one. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him happening. Uh, P- Peter followed him uh, out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing uh, was really happening. I mean, he was in his daze, kind of half awake, half asleep. He thought he was seeing a vision. Verse 10, they passed through the first and second guards, deliverance two, deliverance three, and they came to the iron gate leading into the city. This is the biggest obstacle. I mean, this is the biggest obstacle. I mean, sleeping between two guards with chains, that deliverance was a pretty big deal. Being able to get through the sentries at the door and the other labels of squadrons that were guarding him, each of those is a pretty big miracle. But now for the fourth one, he's standing at the iron gate that leads into the city. This is a big gate, probably takes several men to open it, and they're standing in front of the iron gate, and the scripture says, and it opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. I want you to notice how bound Peter was. I want you to notice that people were praying behind the scenes. But what I want you to notice is that when it came time for deliverance, in God's moment, in God's time, when it came time for deliverance, the chains that shackled Peter fell off. The people that were in his way, that they were blinded. And Peter walked right past those obstacles that were in his way. And when he became to the greatest mountain that stood in his way to get where God wanted him to go, when he came to the greatest piece of bondage, when he came to the greatest chains that shackled him, that iron gate, the iron gate opened by itself. When I was reading through this passage of Scripture and I was as a pastor facing challenges and knowing in my own personal life and you facing challenges in your own life, it was almost as the Lord spoke to me, Brian, the Acts, the writing of the book of Acts, it says in the front of your Bible, it's the Acts of the Apostles. It isn't the Acts of the Apostles. It's the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. If it was the acts of the apostles, we're done because we're not the first apostles. But if it was the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles, we have the same Holy Spirit. 
Which means if we're bound or we're facing obstacles or life is caving in, there is an anointing that comes when the Holy Spirit comes upon our life. I want you to not underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit's anointing that can come upon your life. And when the Holy Spirit's anointing comes into your situation, when the Holy Spirit's anointing comes into your church, the obstacles that have been in the way, all of a sudden, the guards are blinded, the chains fall off. And when you come to the iron gate, it's going to open by itself. I can't tell you as a pastor when I was on that plane somewhere over an ocean and the Holy Spirit said to me, Pastor, keep praying, keep fasting, keep teaching, keep preaching because even though you're butting your head up against a wall, sooner or later, supernaturally, through the power of the Holy Spirit and no effort of your own, the iron gate will open of its own accord through the power of the Holy Spirit. Some of you today are facing that same challenge in your own life. Obstacle, you feel like you're guarded by 16 soldiers bound by chains sleeping between two. There are sentries at the door and you get through one obstacle and God delivers you from another only to be stuck at another. And now you're staring at an iron gate. And I believe the word of God for North Place Church is if you will trust Him, if you will stay faithful to Him, if you will stay in His word and you'll have that prayer going on behind the scenes, the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit will move that obstacle. That mountain will move. That iron gate will open of its own accord through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. God is going to give you a breakthrough. I believe that with all of my heart. For us as a body and for you as an individual. Now, I I don't have to say this, but I just can't. The rest of this story is just funny to me. I don't know if you've spent much time, but Peter, that's powerful. Peter gets delivered. Now, Now notice this, verse 11. Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent an angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything that the Jews, the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Verse 12. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark. And many people had gathered there were praying. These are the same people from verse 5 that were praying for Peter's deliverance. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. Okay, so this is a servant girl named Rhoda. All the believers are in the house. God deliver Peter. God protect Peter. God set Peter free. There's a knock at the door. Rhoda goes to the door, and she opens the door, and when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, without opening it, she ran back and yelled to the people, Peter's at the door! So Peter is saying, knock, 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 knock. Rhoda comes out of the prayer meeting to answer the door and it's Peter. And she's so excited she leaves him standing there and runs back into the prayer meeting. That's a great welcome when you've been in prison for several days. And so she goes back in. These people are praying. I mean, I can see them all in a room holding hands. God, deliver Peter. Set him free. Protect Peter. And Rhoda comes in and says, Peter's at the door. And you know, look what they said, verse 15. You're out of your mind. Boy, don't we pray that way? Don't we do that? God, send revival. God, open the iron gate. The iron gate starts opening. Y'all are crazy. The iron gate's not opening. When she kept insisting that it was so, they just said it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. I mean, how does that feel? Come on, y'all, open the door. They opened the door and saw him and they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and his sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. 
And this is, this is humorous to me. Verse 18. In the morning there was no small commotion among the soldiers. <laughs> I bet. Verse 19. And Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him. He cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. God can set you free from your bondage. And I believe the word for us this morning is if we'll pray behind the scenes, even if we're praying and we don't really believe it like they did, God sees our heart and the iron gate will open of its own accord. I want our teams to come back and help us in the altar this morning. And when we stand to our feet, would you stand with me? And I want our prayer team to come and and position themselves for prayer in the altars this morning. I am, um, you know, I, I, I ask you for patience as a, as a pastoral team, a leadership team. We really just want to make an impact in this community. Our hearts, how can we do less better? How can, how can we do something that makes a difference in the lives of people? And right now we're focused on improving what we offer to kids so that we don't just have a, bunch of babysitting going on while you're in church and they get all wired up on candy and they go home with some things they colored and they really don't even know what they did but it all matters and that that when they if they stay here until they graduate high school at North Place Church they they go on to college and they they impact college campuses and they they we close that black hole we don't have all the details worked out but we're on to something about how the church can simplify its processes and we incorporate the, the impact at home. I want to do that with my kids but I don't know how to do it. I don't, I don't know how to talk to my kids in a way they understand salvation and, and lead them into the baptism of the Holy Spirit and talk to them about ministry and those things and we're this curriculum that we're working on is going to resource parents or grandparents or people that are guardians over minors and make it really simple for you to come alongside the church so that red and yellow make orange and the power of partnership because you are the greatest influence on your children's lives as a church we need the iron gate to open we do I feel like for six years now I've had this vision and my heart's been moving that direction and just boom 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 but I really felt like that word for me was a word of breakthrough But I know that some of you need that word in your own personal lives. Bondage, chains. I don't know if it's sickness or finances or relationships, but God wants you to leave here encouraged today. I'm sorry if I bored you with the nuts and bolts. If I did, just forget about all the nuts and bolts and focus on that one last thing I said at Acts 12. The the Lord wants to give you the hope and courage today that the iron gate is going to swing open to lift up your head and be encouraged if you'll pray behind the scenes and trust it if that's you and you need somebody join with you in prayer today these people are here to help you do it or if you need prayer to give your life to Christ or recommit your life to Christ there's a lot of people since the beginning of the year that have done that with these folks these altars are open they're here for you if you're a guest this morning after I pray this blessing and people start walking to the altar, this is more important than anything. You can come here. If you would like to have time to talk with Haley and I, we'd love to meet you. We'll pray with you in the back. It's whatever you want to do. Would you just let the Holy Spirit touch your heart this morning and take 
that word and make it more than information. Let it be revelation to your heart. If you need a breakthrough, you need the iron gate to open in your life. I really challenge you to let somebody pray with you and come into agreement with you today. Let the Holy Spirit seal that word in your heart so you can walk out of here in faith. Father, I pray that the word of God, which is alive, is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. speak faith into our hearts this morning. Those of us that feel as bound as Peter today between guards and 16 soldiers and chains. Now we're standing in front of an iron gate. Remind us of the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the supernatural power of God. There's nothing we could do of our own effort to get through this. But Lord, if you come on the scene, the iron gate will open of its own accord. For our church and for the lives of our people today as people that stand in front of the iron gate come to prayer with agreement with other believers would you let two or three agreeing touching that one thing Lord would you allow the iron gate to begin to open of its own accord let you, would you let this be a season of breakthrough for North Place Church we ask it in Jesus name